0: Our sermon passage today is from 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. So if you would turn there in your Bibles, or it will be on screen as well. 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God... And of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering and wander off into myths. but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, today's passage it brings together two things that Christians say they like that they generally know they ought to like, that they probably think they like. But when it comes down to it, my experience, many usually don't actually like them. Those two things are sound teaching and Christ's return. See, faithful teaching is like those desserts at the potluck Spread looks so good. You see chocolate. You see whipped cream. You see all these delicious things you like. You fill up your plate. You know, you've got your normal plate, and then you've got your dessert plate at the potluck, right? You fill up your plate. You think, oh, this is great. It's so satisfying. And you take a big bite of something that looks wonderful, and you realize that it's got cream cheese in it. Oh, the worst, right? The wor- okay, that's maybe just my opinion. That's maybe just my opinion. Okay. <laughs> but But seriously, it's good. It's good right up until faithful doesn't match up with preferred. Sound teaching, faithful teaching is good right up until faithful doesn't match up with my preference, what I want in the moment, what my taste is, and then you know you kind of want to throw up. You know you should like it, but you don't have a taste for it. We know that Christ's return should be something we look forward to. So, yeah, so we so then what we do? We we pick up our Bibles, we read Revelation, and perhaps. You know, because of how it's presented in popular movies or books or how we've seen it uh, presented to us, or because, you know, the, the images are difficult to, to understand or, or whatever. Or maybe because deep down we aren't so confident as we wish we were about standing before God on that day. We end up frightened rather than encouraged. It's like it's like that roller coaster someone told you is so awesome. Oh, you gotta go on this roller. You gotta go on that roller coaster. You go and you get in line for two hours. You know, it's the most unenjoyable two-hour wait line. You're like, oh, I guess it looks kind of cool, but I don't know. This is, and then as you go along, you kind of grow less and less confident of your own safety on that ride. You're watching it. You're like, uh, I don't know. Then you you get in and they buckle you in. and You're like, I don't, did they get that quite secure? I'm not. I don't know about this. And in the end, you just end up with a sick stomach. Sometimes it's like that. But in the New Testament and in our passage today, sound teaching is presented as one of the greatest services to the church. And Christ's return is presented as perhaps the greatest comfort to the church. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, what? What what went wrong? What has happened? What is wrong in our own hearts? These two things are especially critical for the preacher of God's Word. And this passage is written specifically to a preacher, to Timothy. And most of us, most of you are not probably going to stand up here and preach a sermon, certainly not regularly. We can learn, though, not just about what faithful preaching is from this passage, but we can also learn what faithful listening is. And so first I want to explain what Paul is telling Timothy by asking two questions. What should faithful preachers do? And then what should faithful preachers expect And this can help us as we think about whether someone is a faithful preacher or not. What should faithful preachers do? What should faithful preachers expect? And then I want to draw some applications for you all by asking the question, how can we be faithful listeners? How can we be faithful listeners? All right. Well, what should faithful preachers do according to 2 Timothy 4.1? Through eight. As Paul draws this letter to a close, he summarizes it in, in some final commands. And he adds gravity to this charge by making Timothy conscious of God's presence now and of God's judgment and consummated kingdom on that day. Right there at the beginning of the passage. And then... In verses 2 through 5, he gives him nine commands, sort of in rapid fire, nine commands. And I want to I lump them together a little bit into uh, maybe three, three different main things, three different main commands that he's giving. The first two commands are essentially telling Timothy to faithfully preach the Word, faithfully preach the Word. The word, And perhaps that seems obvious. Faithful preachers have to faithfully preach the Word, right? But unfortunately and sadly, it's not all that obvious in the world today. And preach here, the word preach in verse 2, it means to herald or to proclaim publicly. And it is the Word, it says, that is to be heralded. The whole truth about God, the whole truth of God, the whole, the whole thing, as our catechism said, the Old and New Testaments, all of it. Today, we have what, what might be called the gospel-centered movement. We've had over the last, I think, decade or two what would be called the gospel-centered movement, and I think it has been in many ways beneficial to the church, and I've benefited from it personally. The gospel is the central teaching of Scripture with God's glory as the primary purpose. And while not everything in the Bible is as clear as everything else, we know that that everything that is necessary for salvation is clear enough that anyone can read it and see it if the Spirit is working in them. We know that all of the Bible is about, uh, the whole story is about how God loves and saves sinners through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It's, It's all coming into and going out of that one major thing. But Satan has snuck in as he does with anything, any movement or any, anything, He snuck something into this movement and into the church, although maybe many wouldn't recognize it. When we verbally assent that Scripture is the only rule of faith and practice, what we mean, what sometimes we end up meaning, is that it is the rule in so much as it speaks to matters of Christian faith and practice. But not when it speaks about other things, like science, or psychology, or medicine, or government, or history, or anything else. But this is not a principle of historic Christianity. I want you to understand that. That is not a principle of historic Christianity. That is a principle of modern Christianity pluralism. And so Satan has snuck this in to what is an otherwise good movement, saying rather than saying, hey, the gospel is the center of all of Scripture, what they've done is said the gospel basically is it. And we can kind of leave off all of these other things that the gospel is actually supposed to. It's actually part of what the gospel is. It's part of that comes into and goes out of what the gospel is, that tells us how to live our lives. And so what we've done is we've split it off, and we've said, no, okay, yeah, totally. The Bible is uh, the, the rule, um, is the only rule of faith and practice, but only when we're talking about churchy things. Only when we're talking about distinctly Christiany things. And only for the Christian. But that's not what the Bible says. R.C. Sproul says it well. The Holy Spirit speaking in the Scriptures is infallible in the whole of our lives. In everything He teaches and everything He touches. He is supreme. There is not one body of truth found in Scripture and a distinct body found in the world. The Bible never steps outside its area of expertise, because the ultimate author is not just an expert on everything, but he knows all things, and he made all things. You see, most atheists would happily grant that the Bible should be the Christian rule for specifically Christian things, so long as it doesn't go any further than that. But That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says this is authority over everything. And whatever it says about whatever it's speaking on, it is the authority. Everything else submits to it. But, second, he tells them the second command here the reco- that is part of being faithful in preaching the word is, he says, to be ready. And this command is a qualification on the first. When we hear be ready, we think, uh, at least I think, maybe perhaps you think differently, but I think oftentimes, oh, have a certain level of training. I need to have a certain level of training. That's what it means to be ready. And then I sort of get down on myself for how dumb and unskilled I am. I'm not, I'm not ready enough. It says be ready, and I'm, not, I'm never ready enough, right? Well, of course, we're never well, we're never ready enough in that sense there's always something more that we can learn there's always you know someone else who's got a greater who could preach a sermon better than I can preach it who knows more than I know it who knows more than you there's always more to be learned so it, it doesn't mean be ready in that sense listen i 'm all about learning i 'm all about preachers uh, being trained they ought to be trained we ought to be trained we ought to continue learning but But I think that oftentimes that kind of thinking results more in passivity and reluctance, which is actually the opposite of what this phrase isn't commanding us to do. You see, be ready here actually has more of a meaning of being on standby. It's more about being willing than about being good. Sometimes the best player that the coach can put in the game is, isn't the most skilled player, but the one who's hungry and ready to play, right? You want you want your linebacker to be the guy who is just itching to sack the quarterback, right? And you can get you can you can not have some you can have less skill, but more motor, and you'll get in the game if the guy with the skill has no motor. And that's what it's telling us. We need to be ready. We need to be on standby. Whenever God puts that thing in front of us, we need to be ready to preach the word into that situation. And he says, be ready in season and out of season. Uh, That is to say, be ready when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. And there are inconvenient times, as we'll see in this passage. And typically, the inconvenience doesn't have to do with like, Oh, I was, you know, really, I was on my way to get some coffee and I really, you know, need that that coffee this morning and now I've got to talk to this. No, not inconvenient necessarily for me in that sense, but but oftentimes it's, it, what it means by inconvenient is it's inconvenient for the other person. They don't want to hear it. Sometimes the other person doesn't want to hear it. And the Bible says, no, when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient, if it's the appropriate time to speak what God's word says, you need to be ready, be on standby to preach it. Listen, even, I'll say it this way, even the less skilled farmer who's willing to do the work, whether it's rainy or sunny, cold or hot or nice out, will produce more crops than the one who is better trained but unwilling to do the work when it's unpleasant out. So the idea here is to preach faithfully that is to preach it truly and to preach it consistently and to preach it whether it's a convenient time or an inconvenient time well commands 3 and 5 tell us a little bit a little bit different have a little different uh, emphasis on them and i summarize it this way we are a faithful preacher is to oppose what opposes the word to oppose whatever opposes the word. The commands are to reprove, that is to correct, to rebuke, that is to censure or stop, and to exhort or to appeal or urge. The faithful preacher does not only promote what the word says positively, but opposes those who would preach or believe otherwise. This spans the spectrum from correcting sin or correcting wrong teaching to commanding someone in the church to just plain stop, and that and that you know that's an unpopular thing today. Right, we think about like the the, the pastor of the church saying you need to stop saying that. That is not God's word, and you need to not teach that in this church. And we think, oh, that's that's bad authority. The Bible says, no, that's, if, if it's the right time to do that, that's good authority. That is exactly the kind of authority that's needed when it's appropriate. Then it says to appeal and urge as well. And these commands are given qualifications, though. It says, with patience and teaching, we're to do this. And I think this, this qualification deals with two traps that I think we all struggle with. And perhaps we all struggle with both of them at different times. On the one hand, there's a temptation to say, oh, I'm sure God will work it out eventually. I see that they've kind of got this wrong idea about this, or they're kind of like maybe toying with this sin over here, or maybe, but I'm sure God will work out with, he'll work that out eventually. I mean, the Holy Spirit will do his thing. I'm sure it's fine. But this isn't patience. It's passivity, isn't it? It's not patience, it's passivity. It's true that the preacher is not the Holy Spirit himself. But he forgets, sometimes, that he is a primary tool that the Holy Spirit uses to teach the people in his church. We have to have a certain level of patience. A preacher ought to, a faithful preacher ought to, be on his knees praying Lord, if you don't open that person's ears, if you don't change that person's heart, then when I tell them what God's word says, it's not going to matter. I'm not that good. And yet, a faithful preacher also realizes that he is the tool, the primary tool by which the Holy Spirit does that work. The other temptation on the other side is, is to say to ourselves, well, that's wrong, they should know that, and then just bulldoze into the situation, right? There's no no other thought about anything else, just gung-ho, uh, uh, not, you know, knock them all down, right? And this can also lack both patience as well as teaching. Teaching is... Teaching here means that you seek to explain, you seek to instruct, not just say, hey, this is how it is, so stop it, you know, like, you actually are explaining it. Teaching with patience desires to explain from the Word why and how it is, because, because the preacher wants to, his people to know what God's Word says and why God's Word says it. He wants them to know so that it actually leads them to a desire to glorify God. So we've got to oppose what opposes the Word, and we need to do it with patience and teaching. But in this, we need to remember, the faithful preacher also has to remember that not everything, as I said earlier, not everything is as clear and plain in Scripture as everything else. Some things are expressly written in one place's uh, in one place, and others are implicitly reasoned by looking at a lot of different things in the Bible and bringing those things together. a faithful preacher has to learn to use wisdom in how to approach all of these different situations. If a sin or a false teaching is more obvious or more potentially damaging sometimes um, sometimes it 's blatant, right? That person knows that 's wrong and they 're not caring and I need to I need to um, bring a strong response to that false teaching or a strong response to that sin because it's very plain. But sometimes it's more subtle. Maybe the one being that needs to be reproved doesn't even see it clearly right now themselves. Maybe it's less clear in Scripture, or it's less clear in their life, it's less obvious. And here, more patience, more teaching is needed. And as listeners, if we have a preacher who is faithful to say what's explicit, even when it's unpopular, then we should allow, I think, more leash to that preacher to explain what is implicit, even if we don't see it yet, either in God's Word or in our life. That doesn't mean that they'll be right, It doesn't mean that that uh, he's going to be right every time, but the grace ought to flow both ways, right? And this takes wisdom. And so, frankly, I know a lot of times in my life and in my years of being a pastor, I have totally messed this up. I've come in strong when more subtlety is needed. I've been subtle when a stronger word was needed. It takes wisdom and it comes with experience, And so, both as listeners and as preachers, grace is needed as we navigate that. And this brings us to why, why we must do these first five commands. We see that in verses 3. And four, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound t- teaching, but have itching ear- having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You need to know that your heart will have a tendency to accumulate for yourself teachers that will suit your passions. Each and every one of us are at risk of doing that. We need to be aware of that. More or less, people will not endure sound teaching. Itching ears here is like a mo- the modern I- idiom for like, you know, someone tickling our ears. You know, it's, they, they're saying what we want to hear anyways, and we like that. It suits us. They tell me what I want to hear. It feels good. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about how awesome I am, and how much God just you know would just love to have me on his team if I'd just be willing to say yes. This is why This is why the saying that often gets spoken in Christian circles, they should know what we're for and not what we're against just doesn't work. You've heard people say that. Well, they they should know what, the world should know what we're for, uh, not what we're against. But that saying, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because our tendency is to accumulate people who will say what we want to hear. And in fact, that saying itself is one of those things. It is one of those things. I, I kind of I like the way that sounds. And uh and, and that means that you'll not actually say the thing that I disagree with. You'll not confront me. You'll not confront the thing that I want to do but I, I ought not to do. You won't tell me what God's word is against because I kind of want to stay in that thing. And God is for faithful preachers being against unsound teaching. God is for faithful preachers being being against and pro- and and declaring what he is against, I'm against that. When we don't do this, uh, the, the result of that that phrase, they should know what we're for and not what we're against. The result of that is that that preachers end up only talking about the things in the Bible that current culture happens to agree with anyways. Now, that's all they talk about. There's find the things that our current culture agrees with, happens to agree with that are in the Bible, and I'll just hit those things on a cycle and never talk about anything else that's in Scripture that might actually confront the evil or the unrighteousness or 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 whatever is keeping people from Christ that they need to repent of, we'll never talk about that. And the result of that is they trust in their current cultural moment. We, we trust in our current cultural uh, uh, way of thinking rather than trusting in Christ and looking to the gospel. That's what happens. It's the gospel of the, the, the zeitgeist instead of the gospel of Christ. Maybe in one sermon, maybe in two sermons, there might be nothing that is disagreeable to you. You know, maybe you come one or two weeks here and you go, hey, man, everything that Cody said, I was like,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Maybe you come a second week and you're like, yeah. But I I think if if you come a third week and there ain't something that's confronted your heart, I'll be disappointed. I'm like, man, I didn't do my job. (laughs) Something's wrong. Or you're just really great. You're just really awesome. Like... Because I'm telling you, I, I don't know that there's one sermon I preach where something doesn't confront my own heart, where it isn't something that I have to deal with as I prepare to get up here and preach God's word. Remember, our brains have a way of justifying what our heart already desires. Our brains have a way of justifying what our heart already desires. Well, there's a few more commands that come pretty in, in, in pretty rapid fire here in verse 5. And I'm going to summarize them like this. His, his command to Timothy is to hold fast to the Word. He basically lays out a contrast. There's going to be these unsound teachers... And people are going to want to accumulate for themselves these unsound teachers that say what they want to hear. And these unsound teachers, they're going to they're going to identify what do the people want to hear, and they're going to talk about those things so that they can they can kind of get that following right. They can they can you know bring in all the the people, feel good about themselves or whatever their whatever their uh, end game is. But Paul says, "As for you, but as for you," and he casts a clear contrast between itching ear ear itchers and faithful preachers and he makes it clear it's a hard road and so you got to hold fast and he gives us four different things he says he says be sober minded or be watchful be watchful not a wanderer sober here means self-controlled or alert in all things listen circumstances shift and so it's got to be in all things it's it's this idea of not Uh, having a a mental, spiritual drunkenness about you, but you're alert. And that takes constant attention. And then next he says, you got to endure hardship, don't bend to it. A faithful preacher has to endure hardship hardship and not bend to it if he wants to hold fast to the Word. The temptation is to, to let a thing go that you shouldn't because you just want to avoid what seems like another fight, what seems like another problem. I'm telling you, it gets exhausting. You're sitting here, you're, you're, the faithful preacher's going, man, I'm having to deal with another sin in my own life, and now I've got to deal with that issue in their life. I've got to confront that false teaching. I've got to figure out how to explain that. With patience, right? I'm supposed to do with patience. But right now, I'm just like, man, there's so many things. Uh, Parents, you know what this is like. Especially the more kids you have, then the more issues you got. You got more little sinners that are doing sinful things that you got to deal with. You got to confront them. You got to teach them this or teach them that. Sometimes it's not even sin. Sometimes it's just, they just don't know. Like, man, I got to track down a hundred things, especially when they're smaller. Let me tell you, when your kids are smaller and you're just getting exhausted, Every, every hour, it's like a new thing. i got to tell this kid, no, don't do it like that. Do it like this. No, stop that. Do this. I'm just, tell, I'm just telling you, stay, endure, endure. Endure, it'll be worth it. Endure, it'll be worth it. Listen, if you sweep things under the rug, all you get is a rug that's easier to trip over. That's all you get. Look, you think the problem will go away, but I'll just tell you from experience, whether it's in your family or in the church, 99 times out of 100, it doesn't go away. It only gets worse. only gets worse. Finally, be an evangelist. I think what he's saying here is be an evangelist, not a recruiter. The ear itchers have a recruiter's mindset. hey, don't you want to join my team? Ooh, what do you, what is, let me figure out what that person wants and I'll just kind of talk about that and I'll get them to join my team like a, like a college football coach, you know? How can I get this person? Look at our facilities, look at our, co- look at our record. Come play for me. But what he's saying is, no, you need to be an evangelist. That's what you need to be. Faithful preachers proclaim the good news, what Christ has done, period. And they, they trust God to do the rest of the work. They know that some people will reject it and some people will receive it. I, sa- I think I said finally, but we actually have one more. Fulfill your ministry, says, do all of your duties, not just the easy parts. It's not enough to say, well, I never taught anything false, if you also allowed all the unsound teaching to go unaddressed, right? It's not enough to say, well, I never taught anything false, if you just avoided all of the difficult things that you needed to talk about, that's not enough. You need to fulfill your ministry, he says. Do all of the duties. Well, what should a faithful preacher do? I mean, it's, it's, it's so simple. Faithfully preach God's word. Oppose what opposes the word. And, and hold fast to the word. Endure. Keep, keep going. Do it all. I mean, this so simple when I put it that way, right? Well, what should a faithful preacher expect? Well, Paul turns to himself as an example here. I think uh, a little bit as a reality check, maybe to Timothy, and a little bit as an and, and also I think as an encouragement to him. As to what awaits if he does, if he fulfills his ministry as Paul has fulfilled his ministry, and, and there's two major expectations. First, faithful preachers should expect to be living sacrifices. Timothy, this is what it's going to be like right now. You're going to be a living sacrifice. You're going to have to give everything for this work. So if you didn't if you didn't know that coming in, if you didn't know that when I first invited you to follow me, well now you know it's going to take it, it all. God or, or Paul has fulfilled his ministry. And he says it's like it's like being poured out As a drink offering. Did you notice in that passage earlier, there's all these other offerings, and the drink offering comes at the very end. Paul has been a sacrifice to God in all of these ways, and he knows he's at the end of his life, and he goes, Ah, it's time for the drink offering. This is the last bit. The last bit is being poured out, and I will pour every ounce. He's endured through the fight. His race is just about finished. He kept the faith. And it's not simply just a matter of, hey, I still believe. I'm at the end and I still believe. I kept the faith. No, that is true, but it's more than that. He has persevered in his work of preserving the faith. Wherever God has placed me where I needed to stand for God's word, where I needed to declare the gospel, where I needed to defend the faith. I did that work as well as I could. To God be the glory. It is costly. It's blood, it's sweat, and it's a lot of tears. Expect to be a living sacrifice. The second thing, the second expectation is this that faithful preachers should expect to be rewarded. And Paul says that his reward is a crown of righteousness. Paul knows that the believer is already counted righteous through faith in Christ. Yet the the New Testament is fond of using this crowning language for the final state of things especially especially in the context of standing before Christ as judge. And we see this in passages like 1 Peter 5.4, James 1.12, Revelation 2.10. In this way, we are currently heirs, and yet then we will be crowned with it. You understand the image that Paul is trying to paint. You are righteous, Timothy. You have been counted righteous by faith in Christ. And yet on that day when you stand before Jesus, when all is said and done, you will be crowned with that righteousness. He's he's running the race, and because of Christ, we are in the lead, and we will be in the lead, and we will cross the finish line first. We will win, and yet when we stand before Christ, then will be our crowning. Right now, it's work. Right now, it's effort lagging out the race. Right now, we have to keep going. But on that day, we will stand on the podium and Jesus himself will crown us with that righteousness. Not because we're so great. Not because we're so great, but because he's so good. That he does that for his children. Because he's promised it to us. Paul's confident, Timothy, do what I do, and you will get what I am going to get, and so will all of your hearers. See, not many of us, as I said, will be preachers in this way and have to give an account for what we did with that work. Most of us will sit under teaching, and then we will stand before Christ. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for every believer then? Well, I think you could express this passage in this sentence, or this is my best effort anyways. We are to endure faithful preaching and ensure our love for Christ's appearing. When you endure faithful preaching, it will give you confidence that you will love Christ appearing. So, how can we be faithful listeners? I want to give you just a number of real quick encouragements, a number of real quick applications for how to be a faithful listener. First, live as in the presence of God all the time. Live as in the presence of God all the time. One day, we will all stand before Christ as judge. And we should live every day every hour, with that thought in front of our mind. And in a real sense, we do live every day in the presence of Christ, right? But do we live like it? I mean, in a very real sense, that is true, but do we live like it? Do we listen to God's Word? Do we listen to sermons as if that's the case? Would we look to God's Word more often or listen to sermons lazily if we had that in the front of our mind? Would we want to hear encouragement to devotion and discouragement from sin if we, li- if we lived every moment as if we were in the presence of Christ as we are? Would we cut out certain segments of life from the life-giving Wisdom of God's word saying, oh, well, God's word doesn't really matter for that. I can kind of do whatever I want. If we lived as if every moment was in the presence of Christ, would we take time to meditate after a sermon on all the ways that God's word could be applied to our life, all the things that God might want to have spoken to us from that sermon, if we lived as if we live before the face of God in every single moment of our life? Like we do. See, don't fall for that insidious doctrine that says that Christ is Lord over some areas of your life, but not others. We will give an account for everything. Christian or non-Christian, we will all give an account. Period. That's what God's Word says. Now you might say, "But Cody, I don't know all of God's Word. I don't know all of what it might say for my life. Or, Or I know for a fact that I didn't used to live that way. I know for a fact I used to ignore that. I know for a fact I didn't know what I was supposed to do and I did the wrong thing. What do I do about that? Well, I I want you to know it's one thing to say, I'm not sure what to do. We'll always have ignorances. And we need to remember that our God is a gracious and merciful God. He's gracious and merciful with his people. But it is another thing entirely to essentially say to ourselves, well, it doesn't matter what I do. It's one thing to say, I don't know what to do, it's another thing to say, I don't care what I'm supposed to do. live as, as if we're in the presence of God, but also submit to the word, even when it's inconvenient. How do we live faithfully in the presence of God? We've got to submit to the word, right? The word is where God has revealed how he wants us to live. The word must be received by faith, meaning, among other things, we trust it before we ever even read it. If I am, if I am opening up God's word, and my mindset is I'm going to judge whether this is true or not. I'm going to judge how right I think it is, then we have you might as well just close the thing up and put it down. Because it's not going to please God, whatever you're going to do. Because you don't please God without faith. And if you have faith in Christ, then you go, whatever you have said in your word, I will believe it. And that means I will strive to do it. It's easy to do that when... Things are mostly convenient to us, and even and even sometimes there's things that are inconvenient. Uh, maybe 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 things that are really inconvenient for someone, but they're not so inconvenient for us. And so what do we do? We do, we, we do those things because it's not like it doesn't put me out too much. And I guess God said I should do it. And then and then we we feel like real good about ourselves, and we look at someone else and we go, you don't even do that. It's your problem. We have to remember that. That sometimes things are more inconvenient for some people than they are for other people, right? Sometimes there's something that, that is very difficult for me to trust God for, but it's really easy for you to trust God for. And sometimes there's things that's really easy for me to trust God for, but it's really difficult for you to trust God for, right? It goes both ways. And so it's, it's easy to do this. It's easy to say, oh yeah, I submit to God's word when it's convenient, but what about when it's inconvenient? That's where the rubber meets the road, that's when we find out whether or not we trust Christ. We've got to compare ourselves to God's Word. We've got to search our hearts to see if we're really trusting Christ with things. We've got to submit to God's Word even when it's inconvenient. Third, Desire the truth, don't follow your heart. desire the truth, don't follow your heart now now, I put follow your heart in quotes for a reason I, I'm meaning it here in the sense that it is commonly used in our in our uh, everyday speech and, and in the world today. you know that that kind of idea of hey you know, do what seems or feels right to you, which is another way of saying that we've become a standard unto ourselves for what is right and wrong. And of course, this is exactly the opposite of the last point. But I will say that if our heart desires Christ, then following our heart can be a good thing. Or it can become a good thing, but I want you to understand that it won't be immediately. See, Romans 12, 1 tells us that in view of God's mercies, we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, which is our worship. And by faith in Christ, by faith in those mercies that he declared in Romans 1 through 11, right, this is what I'm going to do for you, this is what I do for my people, God said. By faith in that, we desire to worship him and to live in his presence. We're willing and ready to trust him. Submit to Him. And many times, Christians stop right there. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. He saved me. That's it. But I want you to know, that's not it. That's not it. Because the passage goes on. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You see, when you understand what Christ has done for you, and you love him, and you want to submit to him, there's another factor in this equation. You need to actually know what his will is. You may think to yourself, I love God, and so I'm going to do this. And God's going, don't do that. And don't say, you're doing it because you love me. That's not what I want my people to do. And of course, he's gracious with us, and he's merciful. But he wants us to look into his word and to learn. And he, and he promises us this wonderful promise that if we would refuse to be conformed to the world, if we would go, no, 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 it's not what the world says. It's not the world's wisdom, but it's God's word and that, that our minds would be renewed and that we'd be transformed in our lives and that he would give us a greater and greater ability to discern what his will is. To know God wants me to do that, he doesn't want me to do that. It's a wonderful promise. But I want, you, I want you to be weary here because sometimes, listen, some of you guys have been Christians for a long time, right? And sometimes you've been Christian for a while and you've learned a lot about God's word and you go, man, I have... I, I used to think that, you know, and I've grown so much, and, and I can just, you know, and, I'm, and then you could kind of get comfortable, and you can kind of start to think, oh I, oh, I know, and then that's the moment when Satan sneaks in something, he sneaks in something that you don't want to obey God's word on. And that, that part of our mind where we know so much that we actually get good at convincing ourselves that, we, that it actually is this instead of that, when it really, the, some, the, the, the child who reads it just goes, well, duh, do that. And we, we've, we've thought, we're so smart that we've figured out the gymnastics to get around that, you know what I mean? So we gotta be careful. We gotta be humble. We gotta realize that our hearts are deceptive. And that's why listening to faithful preaching, especially faithful preaching that goes through the Bible and doesn't skip verses that are difficult, that's why it matters so much because eventually, eventually, God confronts us through His Word. All right. The last, no, I got two more quick applications for hearers lose for Christ. Lose for Christ and you'll never lose with Christ. This living sacrifice language leads us to our uh, this, this fourth application. Typically, when we think of all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, we think of them as shadows of Christ's sacrifice. All of them have been, all of them have been fulfilled in Christ and His one sacrifice on the cross. And certainly. That is the case. They have, in one sense, been fulfilled by by Christ on the cross, and yet also because we are in Christ, the Bible says that now we are to be living sacrifices as well. And so those things that the Old Testament told us to do, we we don't sacrifice animals anymore. No, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices now because of what Christ did in offering himself as a living sacrifice. Christ is the Lamb, well, I guess he, didn't, he, offered, he offered himself as a dying sacrifice. Christ is the lamb sacrificed once and applied to us every day. And because he's applied to us every day, we don't have to kill animals, nor do we have to uh, die, but we lay down our lives for him. We d- lay down our lives to him, and we know that he will pick it This is the way of Christ. We may lose for his sake, but we will never lose with him. When we lose our life to him, he says that he will save it. When we pursue his kingdom, he says that everything else will be added to us as well. And so when it's inconvenient and it's not what we desire, remember when you lose for Christ, you never lose with him. Finally, look to Christ. Look to Christ who rewards gratuitously we often shy away from this reward language and some think that you know if we use re- re- reward language then then that mean, that must mean that we've done something to merit it if if a person is rewarded then they must have done something to merit it right but we know that we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone right and yet paul uses that language and we see it often in the new testament Paul knows it's not as if Paul is unaware that we uh that that faith is credited to us as righteous. I mean he knows it better than we know it I mean, he He wrote about it and it became scripture, so I figure he's got it pretty much down, but this mercy, this is mercy, just as romans twelve one says that we are to keep God's mercy in view as we offer ourselves as sacrifices. It's God's mercy. It's not our performance, but it's God's promises that make us confident that he will reward us. It's not, it's not our performance, but it's God's promises. We know that he will reward us. We know we'll be crowned with righteousness, not because I've done so many great things and I have such confidence in myself, but because God promised it for those who have faith in him and I have confidence in his promises. I've confidence in what Christ has done. And so, our sacrifices are meager and flawed, often littered with sin and pride and all the rest. Yet, when done in faith, He is pleased. It's a pleasing aroma, the Bible says. Even our meager offerings, as children of God, He rewards them anyway. It's like your kids when you see them do something, and it, and they're really they're really wanting to to do something for you, and, and they bring you something, and you're just like, in your head, you're thinking, that's hideous. You know what I mean? Uh, Dad, I made you dinner. You know, My kids actually make some good dinner, so I'm not, don't, don't be. Dad, look at this wonderful art I did. Oh, this is fantastic. We're going to put it on the fridge. We want everyone to see it. It's like, it's never going to be put in a museum. This is no Rembrandt. But you receive it as if it is. your love and your mercy. And when we offer ourselves to God, albeit with sin and ignorances and weaknesses and pride and all of the rest, and yet God receives it and he says, good job, my children. I love you. That's a pleasing aroma to me. And he rewards us. So everywhere through First and 2 Timothy, the warnings have been that those who wander from the faith and do not endure are in grave danger. The opposite then is true. The faithful endure faithful preaching, and they can have confidence when Christ returns. But perhaps you're sitting here and you think, well, Cody, I trust Christ, but man, this still freaks me out knowing all the sins that I've committed, knowing all the things that I've done. It freaks me out to think about standing before a holy God like that. Why, for you, if that's you, I want you to hear the words of Hebrews chapter 9.28. Here's what it says. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When Christ returns a second time, if by faith you have received what he did on his first coming, he does not come the second time to deal with your sins. They have already been dealt with. If he came a second time to deal with your sins, that would not be an indictment on you. It'd be an indictment on him. There's no way he would do that. His work is perfect. Perfect. He doesn't need to come again to deal with your sins. He already dealt with them. His blood will be effective to save exactly those whom it was shed for. All of this by His mercy, not our merit. He's done it. Therefore, when He returns, it'll be like like sitting in a courtroom, right? And you're on trial. And you look up into that judge's box And and you're at your sentencing, and you know the judge is about ready to step into that box, and he's about ready to sentence you, and you know all the things that you've done. And then into the judge's box comes a judge who already went to jail for you. And you go, amen. Amen. I was looking forward to that judge coming and standing before me. we can be confident. Church, we can be confident. We will love Christ appearing. Let's pray.